You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Craig Cabanis. Well, good morning to you. I want to welcome you and say it's great to be together. It's great to have you with us this morning, and it's great to have those online uh, watching as well. Thanks for joining with us this morning in worship. Well, we have been in a series called God and Politics. That's what we've been talking about. We're doing it for four weeks. So the last two weeks, here's what we covered. We covered, uh, this is the third week of the series. So we covered uh, Romans 13, and we talked about what it means to be citizens what God's calling on us is as citizens. We talked about the vocation of citizenship and the application was a challenge to those who, uh, who have uh, detached from the political process. And it was a calling to take politics more seriously because politics involves people. And so that is a way we love our neighbor by participating politically. So that was for people who don't put enough in politics. Last week we talked about people who put too much into politics and we looked at the passage about rendering to Caesar what is Caesar and to God what is God's. And we talked about political idolatry, the idea of putting too much in politics. Today we're going to talk about praying politically out of 1 Timothy 2, praying politically. But this is very important. I need to tell you what I'm going to speak on next week. Because I don't want anybody to think that I, that I shaped a message based upon the winner of an election um, and, uh, or an unknown winner of an election, too. So, I mean, I do reserve the right. Uh, if things are too chaotic, I do reserve the right to, uh, you know, do a different message. But uh, if things are more normal, I don't want anybody to think that this is about uh, who wins. And so next week I'll be talking about what it means for Christians to live in exile. To live in exile, to be a sojourner, uh, to be one who's passing through. So, regardless of who wins, we are in exile. Uh, next week, because that's how you always live the Christian life. So we'll be talking about that uh, as we approach the election. Many of us are anxious or fearful. This week, I read an article that was uh, quoting, talking about the political commentator, actually comedian turned commentator, I guess, John Stewart, and uh, he was been uh, he was being uh, interviewed, and they were talking. He was talking about how he's doing in these days, and I thought his comments summed up how many feel, both on the right and on the left. Stewart said, "I'm terrified." I'm anxious, I'm lonely, I'm wishing it was 2010 again. An election and a pandemic? How much canned soup and ammunition can one man have? Then he said this, I want to know how much longer we have to keep going through this. Where are we in this marathon? He's saying it feels like we're running a marathon of angst. And I want to know, are we at the two-mile mark? Are we halfway, the 13-mile mark? Are we at the 23-mile mark and we can sort of see the finish line where we soon get to exhale? 
I I thought he reflected well the angst and the weariness that many feel. So today, before the election and in this season, we want to look at prayer. Our theme for the ministry year is praying for change. And the text we're looking at today talks about that. It talks about the difference that prayer makes uh, in a society and the difference that prayer makes in um, fueling our gospel mission. So let's read 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 through 8. This is God's holy word. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Did you notice the flow of the text? I mean, here's kind of the big idea of what he's saying. He is saying that we are to pray for civil authorities so that society may be peaceful so that the gospel may spread freely. That's the argument of the passage. He's saying praying for the king and praying for all those in authority leads to peaceful order in society. And peaceful society leads to the unhindered spread of the gospel. And the unhindered spread of the gospel means that the gospel can reach all people Because God desires all people to be saved. And so there is sort of a three-part flow to his argument. There is the king, there is society, and there is the mission. The theme of the message with hand gestures, I just realized. There we go. There is the king, there is society, and there is the mission. You're going to remember that. You won't remember anything I said, but you will remember when he did piano fingers uh, symbolizing the mission. So we're going to talk about each of those. First of all, the priority of praying for those in authority. We're going to talk about the priority of praying for those in authority. Then I want to talk about the goal of praying for those in authority. And then I want to talk about the mission of praying for those in authority. So the priority, the goal, and the mission. The priority, uh, it's very clear. In chapter 1, he's been telling Timothy to guard sound doctrine uh, because he is in a, in a battle, basically, with false teachers. So he's saying, guard sound doctrine. And in chapter 2, he begins with a call to prayer. First of all, then, verse 1, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving Givings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions. Now, this is urgent. He says, I urge you. And then he does something very interesting. He takes uh, four 
different words for prayer. There's only seven Greek terms for prayer in the New Testament, and four of them are piled up together in this one statement. Uh, There's not a lot of difference between the first three. Supplications, that's requests. Prayers are talking to God, prayers. And intercessions are praying on behalf of another. So it's requests, talking to God, uh, making uh, requests on behalf of another, and then thanksgivings. Thanksgiving is almost always tied to prayer when Paul is writing about prayer. So he urges them to pray for all people, and he singles out kings and those who are in high positions. I think in our context today, it would be fair that we, could, that we pray for our elections because we live in a society, we live in, under a democracy where our prayers make a difference because our prayers uh, actually determine who will serve in high positions. That would have been true under Rome as well. But, but there, there's, a, there's a, a change that happens in our society. There's voting that happens. And so we are to pray for those who will lead us, those who, were, who, will, uh, given, who are given high positions. You know, our democracy is far different than Paul's Rome. But even there, he says, pray for people. Because regardless of the government, regardless of what type of government is in place, Christian citizens influence the direction of national affairs through prayer. Did you know that? That Christian citizens influence the direction of national affairs through prayers. Why? Because God rules over Caesar. We saw that last week. It's not that Caesar rules over government and God rules over spiritual matters like the church and your private spirituality. No, God oversees all things. He rules over all things. And so we pray to God for those in authority because it affects society. And not only that, when we pray for those in authority, it affects us. It affects us. I read an account this week of someone who was writing about their friend, James, and this is what he said. James is an an older gentleman, and he says, James has a commitment to pray, quote, for kings and all those in authority. That's a quote of the passage we just read. He first started praying for Jimmy Carter when Carter assumed the presidency in 1977. Ever since then, James has made a commitment to pray for both the president and his respective city's mayor every single day. Every single day. He's able to recall specific prayers. He's prayed for Carter, for Ronald Reagan, for George Bush Sr., for Bill Clinton, for George Bush Jr., for Barack Obama, and for Donald Trump. He's never missed a day. When I asked him why he prayed every single day for both the president and his mayor, I was convicted by his words, quote, I pray for them because Jesus is my Lord and God's word is my lamp unto my feet. Even if I don't like what I read in the scriptures, I take it to heart. And so I pray for wisdom, integrity, protection, and guidance for those in authority. But over the years, I learned that I needed to engage in this discipline, not just for them, but also for me. Praying for them every single day helped humanize them for me and also made me more human. It has helped soften some of my hardness 
anger or cynicism that I began to feel against leaders that I didn't like or that I disagreed with. It reminds me that they're people just like me, created in God's image with fears, insecurities, and hopes. It reminds me that they also need Jesus. And most importantly, that Jesus loves them. And finally, praying for leaders reminds me that my trust is not in human authority, which is why I don't pray to them, but rather to Jesus. I wonder how much of the, what did he say, hardness and anger or cynicism we have towards a president or a presidential candidate or some other office holder or person running from office would be affected by daily praying for them. Well, that's why Paul urges pray for them for it affects the king, but it also affects the church when the church prays for its rulers. It's hard to hate someone that you pray daily for priority of praying for those in authority. Number two, the goal of praying for those in authority. He says that in verse two, pray for kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life. When we pray for leaders, we are praying for order instead of disorder. We're praying for quiet. That's what he says, that you may lead quiet lives. We're praying for quiet instead of unrest. We pray that our leaders will act for the good of all people and that they will cultivate peace. Listen, the blessing of good government is peace for its citizens. Good government ensures that people can freely live and unhindered, as Paul says here, quiet life. And in this environment, the church can fulfill its calling without interference. That is the direction of the prayer here. Pray for the king and others in leadership so that there may be peace in society. But this is not just general tranquility. But this is peace with a purpose so that the church can fulfill its mission without interference. That's where he goes because God wants all people to be saved, he says. As we saw a couple of weeks ago in Romans 13, governing authorities exercise a delegated authority from God, and they are to promote a just society. They're to punish evil and to promote good for the flourishing of all citizens. When we are praying for those in high positions, we are praying that they would fulfill their Romans 13 calling, that they would act justly, that they would act fairly, that they would consider all people, especially justice for those who live on the margins. Maintaining peace for its citizens, that's the responsibility of governing authorities. And so we pray for them that they will execute that responsibility delegated to them by God, whether they know it or not. And many wouldn't be aware that they're exercising authority given by God. He goes on to say, it's not just for peace and quiet life, but we're to live godly and dignified in every way. So he's saying in the midst of this ordered society, we're to live a certain way. We're to live godly and we're to live dignified lives. So when God answers this prayer and there is an ordered society, we are to leverage those kind of favorable conditions to love our neighbor. When we are granted uh, a, a lack of hindrance in life, when we are granted peace and quiet life, 
life. We are to use that not to exploit someone or not for our own indulgence. We're to lose, use that to love our neighbor. We're to use that to communicate the gospel to others. Behind all these prayers we're going to see is God's heart to reach the world with the good news of Jesus. And that leads to the third idea, the mission of praying for those in authority. So the purpose of praying, uh, or rather the priority of praying, he urged it. The goal of praying for a peaceful and quiet society. And then the mission of praying for those in authority. A peaceful culture that, that is, provides conditions for, to facilitate gospel ministry. When there is peace, it facilitates gospel mission. Jonathan Lehman, uh, a writer who many of you have read uh, the 10-day devotional that he wrote. We've gone through that together as a church. Lehman makes the point that we pray for government leaders so that they will provide an orderly society. That sets the stage for gospel mission. This is how he says it. Quote, governments provide a stage for the drama of redemption. Now, governments can't hinder the drama. They can't stop the drama. But governments do provide the stage And certainly it determines sort of the contours or the strategy of the drama of redemption. And the drama of redemption is about getting the good news to all people because God loves his world and he desires people to be saved. So Paul fulfills, uh, talks about this mission that he's seeking to fulfill in verse 4. So we have pray for kings, we have quiet and peaceful life. Uh, You know, that's good and pleasing in the sight of the Lord. Verse 4 God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. So Paul says it's vital that people come to the knowledge of the truth. That government is to act in such a way to, to, provide, um, to provide no barrier to the gospel being lived out and enjoyed and experienced and shared. That's what he says. He wants everybody to know the truth. Well, what is the truth he wants everybody to know? Well, he talks about it right here. He wants people to know that this world is not the way God first created it. That God created the world perfect. He created a perfect world and the first couple enjoyed paradise where they had harmony with God, harmony with one another, harmony with his creation. And as the creator of all, God delegated to Adam and Eve the oversight, the sort of under rule, uh, if you will, the under rule of his world. They are image bearers of God and they are to rule over his creation. But the first couple was tempted. And rather than submit to God and maintain the peace and quiet, you talk about peace and quiet, what he talks about in this passage, they had it perfectly. The, the, the Hebrew word is shalom. It's life as it was meant to be lived. That's what they had. But they shattered that peace because they defied God. And they, they disobeyed God because they wanted to be like God rather than to submit to God. And that first sin brought death to the creation. Their rebellion shattered their relationship with God. They were separated from God and from one another. Their rebellion ushered in physical and spiritual death as well. And and since them, every person that has been born has been born uh, spiritually separated from God. But God is merciful. 
And as soon as they defy him, and as soon as he pronounces a curse over them, the drama of redemption begins. Because right there in the garden where they turn their backs on him, he gives a promise. And he promises that he will send one who will crush the head of the tempter. He will send one who will restore what has been lost. He will send one that will redeem humanity and will reconcile people to God so that the separation that took place initially in the garden would be repaired. The curse would be reversed. And this one who's promised would come to make all things new. Well, that promise is fulfilled in the coming of Jesus Christ to reconcile broken relationships, primarily our broken relationship with God, but also our broken relationships with others. And what Paul says here is that there is one God and one mediator between God and men. So the one who would come to bridge the gap between God and man was the mediator. A mediator joins parties that are separated or opposed. Verse four, I'm sorry, verse five, there's one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all. So what he's saying here, the New Testament teaches us that God, Jesus is God and is God. He lives a perfect life. He obeys his father perfectly. He obeys the law, the law that we had broken. So Adam broke the law. Eve broke the law, but Jesus comes and fulfills. He honors the law and obeys perfectly. So he represents God, but he also represents man. Jesus Christ is fully man as well. And as man, he represents humanity. And it says that he gave himself a ransom for many. That is, he died in our place. So as both God and man, he's able to bridge the divide between God and man. That's what a mediator does through his death and through his resurrection, anyone that trusts him and believes in him is brought back into relationship with God, is reconciled with God. The Bible tells all kinds of things about what this means, that, that the person who believes in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for their sins, that that person receives new life, that that person receives eternal life, that that person receives God's dwelling in him or her, the very spirit of God, that that person, uh, that all things will be made new for that person who will one day inherit with all believers the new heavens and the new earth, which Jesus will return to bring. And Paul says, I'm all about that good news. That's my whole calling. That's what he said. Uh, for this, I'm appointed a preacher. That is, I tell this news. I'm an apostle. That's a, I'm sent out. My whole life is about being sent out to give that story, that good news to people. That you can be made right with God because one has come to bring man back together in relationship with God through his death in our place, bearing our sins that we might be forgiven. So he says, because of all of that, because that's God's heart to draw people to himself, that all people he desires to be saved because of that, pray for Kings. That's where it started. Pray four terms for prayer, pray for those in society. So that who lead society, so that society may be peaceful and stable so that the gospel, this good news may spread unhindered pray for government so that society is orderly because that is the stage for the drama of redemption. That is the stage for the drama of redemption. 
Praying for kings and those in high positions, ultimately, Paul says here, is with the goal. It is for the common good. It is for the flourishing of all people. But it is ultimately for the gospel to spread to all people that people might know Jesus Christ. Now you ask, we can look at something like that and say, that sounds really spiritual that the government is supposed to set the stage for the drama of redemption, that the government is supposed to do things which ultimately facilitate our evangelistic mission. How does that work? Lehman, again, in an article, talks about how governments set the stage for the drama of redemption. This is what he says. He gives some voting advice here, uh, which is vague and not candidate or party-centered. But he says, Christians should vote for the candidate, the party, the legislation, or the ballot measures with a limited but clear view of what the government has been authorized and ordered by God to do, to exercise judgment and establish justice, that's Romans 13, and to build platforms of peace, order, and flourishing, that's 1 Timothy 2, to make sure people are free and not hindered from knowing God and being redeemed. We don't want a government who thinks it can offer redemption, but a government who views its work as a prerequisite for redemption for all its citizens. The government builds the streets so that you can drive to church. The government protects the womb so that you can live and hear the gospel. The government insists on fair lending and housing practices so that you can own a home and offer hospitality to non-Christians. The government works for education so that you can read and teach your children to read the Bible. The government treats all people and races equally so that Christians can join the same churches and present a picture of heaven's diversity. The government protects marriage and the family so that husbands and wives can model Christ's love for the church. The government polices the streets so that you are free to assemble as churches unmolested and make an honest living so that you can give money to the work of God. You might disagree on government involvement in any of these examples, but it's the grid I want you to see and adopt. Government renders judgment to establish peace, order, and prosperity so that the church might do what God calls it to do. That's a different perspective, I, I think. Most people aren't thinking, yeah, my, I'm voting in a way as I, I, have, I have the mission of the gospel in view. How do we apply this? Well, first of all, we pray. I mean, how, it's, you don't have to be a Bible scholar to say, well, I think the application would be to pray. Yeah, yeah that's it. You got it. Pray. We pray for leaders in high positions. We pray for peace. Now, I want to say that is not ultimate. And that's another reason this passage is powerful. It doesn't end on peace. It ends on people hearing and believing the gospel. That's the ultimate. That's the ultimate. A a certain type of government or a certain type of society that is peaceful is not the ultimate. In the New Testament, we see the gospel spreads under tyranny. These are tyrannical governments and the gospel is spread. I mentioned last week that the gospel has often spread most quickly uh, in societies that are ruled under tyranny. But the Bible doesn't say pray for tyranny 
or welcome tyranny. The Bible says, pray that there may be peace and order so that the gospel may be forth. So, so when you pray for something, that doesn't mean that's the ultimate you have to get. So when we pray for healing, for instance, we pray sincerely and genuinely, but the ultimate is that God's will be done and that I glorify God either through being healed or through trusting him when I'm not healed. Do you see how the healing is an ultimate? God is ultimate. And in this case, it's not a peaceful society that is the ultimate, but that the gospel going forth so that people may meet Christ, the mediator. But we certainly pray for kings and those in high positions that will maintain justice and that will maintain an orderly uh, culture so that the gospel can go forth. So we pray for candidates who will win and you know, act for peace. And we pray for peace following the election as well. We pray for peace, however long, whether we know next week this time or whether we don't know who finally won, we are praying for peace. And we are ultimately praying that no matter what happens, no matter who wins, no matter what goes on, that people will come to Christ. That's the ultimate prayer. And that should have gone probably in last week's message that we can have a political idolatry when we think the ultimate is what happens in our government. The ultimate is what happens with the king of all spreading the gospel to all people. So we pray with leader, for leaders in high positions. And lastly, we pray without anger or quarreling. Verse 8 is really key. Because after saying all this stuff, he then comes back to prayer. He's talking about, this whole chapter is kind of talking about... Um, how we, how we are to act in the household of God, he says in chapter three, and it includes certainly our gathering as well. But he says in verse eight, he's going to address men and women, but certainly verse eight applies to women as well. He says, I desire that in every place, the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. So when I say that, I, I agree, I understand the text addresses men, but he's not saying if you're a woman, it's okay to quarrel, it's okay to be angry, and you never need to pray. So it, obviously it applies to women as well, but he's specifically addressing men in, the, in this case. Pray without anger or quarreling. During this election season, I don't think we have had our finest moments as a church in this country. I don't think I've had my finest moments, certainly in my heart as I hear and respond with anger or cynicism. It seems that there's been a lot more anger and quarreling than prayer. I think there's been a lot of anger. There's been a lot of quarreling. I don't know how much lifting holy hands in prayer there has been. But what a glorious picture we find laid out for us here. A church united in prayer for governing authorities, trusting God to bring peace and for God to reach all people through a church that is dignified in every way as we bring the good news. That's the vision. The church dignified in every way as we share the good news, which, which will be offensive to many, but may we not be offensive. <laughs> may the gospel bring offense, but may the messengers not be offensive in our attitudes. But verse eight reveals another way that peace promotes gospel expansion. He says before that a peaceful order, we pray for that, for God wants everybody to be saved. But there's another way here that peace promotes gospel expansion. 
For the gospel message to flourish in the world, we not only pray for peace outside the world and society, but we pray for outside the church and society, but we pray for peace inside the church. That's why we don't want any anger or quarreling. Prayer instead of quarreling. If social media is any indication, the church is divided as this election approaches. I'm talking about the church in general, maybe our church as well. But the church is divided as the election approaches. Why? Why is that? I'm going to venture why I think there's quarreling and why I think there's anger, brother against brother, sister against sister, brother against sister. It, it's, it's why I think. And then I want to offer a solution. I, I, I think among Christians there's disagreement in the ultimate, ultimately not so much about issues. I think there, among Bible-believing, God-fearing people, there's quite a bit of overlap, quite a bit of agreement among everyone. I think the division has been about the philosophy of a vote, the philosophy of voting, which the scripture doesn't give us a lot of detailed um, information about the calculus of how you form a vote. These people aren't voting. These people aren't voting. You don't say, were you, were you for Nero? No, I was for somebody else. <laughs> but we get to vote, and Christians use different methods to decide, hopefully under the Scripture, hopefully in the fear of God, how their conscience will dictate their vote. So, for example, some Christians will choose to vote almost entirely, if not entirely, on a candidate's policies. And oftentimes, a few policies will rise to the top, one, two, three policies maybe, that, that these, if you, if you check these, you can get my vote. If you don't, there's no way. And so oftentimes, it's just policies that drive a person's conscience in voting. Other times, uh, other Christians will say, well, for me, it's not only policy, but they will strongly weigh the person, if I could say it that way, the policy and the person. In a biblical worldview, you can't separate a person's character from their leadership. It's impossible. You can't, we, we're not, we're not uh, disintegrated, we're integrated people, and who we are affects how we lead. So a person, some people will say it's policy, but it's also very important to me what the person is like. And of course, everybody agrees that a candidate has to have a minimum threshold of character to earn your, your vote, right? They have to have at least a minimal standard of integrity and a minimum standard of morality. But not every Christian draws the threshold at the same spot. You get my vote if you at least meet this standard. Not, not every Christian. Looking at scriptures of what a leader should be like, what a king should be like, not everybody's going to draw the same line. So there's already differences. Some people are policy only. Some people are policy, and boy, we're going to be affected by the leader's character. Some people weigh that character basis differently. There's also, I would say, other criteria, like Romans 13 and 1 Timothy 2, where we say, which candidate do I predict will lead the country in a better direction when it comes to justice, which we talked about two weeks ago, or peace and freedom so that the church can flourish in its mission, 1 Timothy 2. Now, that's speculative a bit, but it's looking forward and saying, I'm placing my vote here because I think this candidate, 
For this office will do a better job providing an environment of peace and an environment of justice. Well, then what if neither candidate scores high enough in all categories? There's differences there. Some will say we live in a practical world, and so I will vote for the lesser of two evils. You've got to make a decision. You've got to make a difference. So you just, neither candidate in a particular race match up with all my policies. Neither candidate uh, match up with the character I would have. Neither candidate, am I sure, will lead uh, Romans 13, 1 Timothy 2 in a way that I think God desires. And so, but I'm going to vote for the lesser of two evils. We live in a real world and you got to make a real decision. Other people will say the lesser of two evils is still a vote for evil. And so my conscience won't allow that. So I'm going to vote third party. I'm going to vote right in. Or I'm going to abstain from that particular race, move on to the next race, vote for that, vote for that, vote for that. Those are all matters of conscience. Christians who weigh matters biblically and vote according to their conscience don't always land in exactly the same place. And when they don't, There's anger and quarreling where people look down the aisle or look on social media and say, I can't believe that person said that. I can't believe that person believes that. I can't believe that person, a Christian, offered that argument. That is horrendous. And there is quarreling and there is arguing and there is little category of, there's little praying going on. Not only is there little praying going on, rather than living our lives in a dignified way, we, we dishonor the unity of Christ, that he, has, that he died and gave his life for unity among his people in our gospel witness. There are some things that must remain in a con- to the conscience informed by the word. And I just gave you multiple ways that someone could land differently in their conscience. Well, this week I read something very refreshing, and I'm closing with this. Where quarreling and anger was replaced with respect and room for a differing point of view by two godly leaders. These are two leaders that have shaped me, shaped all your pastors in various ways. Really shaped me, especially in my, when I first was beginning, beginning to be a pastor. Two leaders are John Piper and Wayne Grudem. If you read what's come out in the last week, you'll find out they're not voting the same way. They love Jesus. They fear his word. They have decades, decades of faithful ministry. And what they believe and how they're voting is entirely irrelevant for what I want to read to you. I mean, it's, it's, it's important, but it's irrelevant for here. So John Piper writes an article explaining how he will vote or explaining how he sees the two candidates. And then Wayne Grudem, who views things totally differently, responds to Piper. And all I'm going to do is read you the introduction and the conclusion of Grudem's article as a model, as a model for how we should respond about political differences. This is what Grudem writes. John Piper has been a friend, a good and faithful friend for more than 40 years. I thank God for his remarkable worldwide ministry, his evident deep love for God, his faithfulness to every word of scripture. 
And the way his life of self-sacrifice continues to provide a challenge to me personally. When we have opportunities to be together, I enjoyed every minute of the conversation. I enjoy every minute of the conversation with him. I pray for him regularly as I believe he does for me. I agree with probably 98% of everything he has written and said during his entire ministry. This is why I don't think it's the issues. It's the philosophy of a vote. But he and I have reached different conclusions about this year's presidential election. And then graciously, but fairly surgically, he takes each line of Piper's article, not each line, the major arguments of Piper's article and gives his rebuttal. So he summarizes the arguments and then he gives his rebuttal. And then after a number of pages, this is the conclusion. Finally, just as John Piper in his article modeled respect for those who have another position, so I also respect him for the courage and clarity of his convictions and for his characteristic willingness to advocate a potentially unpopular position because he thinks it's right. I hope that in what I have written here, I have modeled a way to disagree with a friend graciously and in a way that will not damage our friendship in the future. And then listen to this P.S. P.S. After I finished writing this article... I sent it to John for any comments. He replied that I had represented him fairly, and he assured me that he counted me as a dear friend. He also pointed out how I could make one of my arguments stronger. His arguments disagreeing with me. Here's how you can come at me stronger. I think that only someone with a strong confidence in the sovereignty of God over all history would do that in the midst of a serious disagreement about the future of a nation. Regardless of what you think of these two men, I just want to say that is godliness and dignity. That is placing kingdom over Democrat, Republican, third party, whatever. That is, That is godliness. That's what godliness looks like with people that you agree 98% with. Forget 98%. Christians that you agree 90% with, 80% with, 70% with on doctrine. If they're they're orthodox Christians, you're probably going to minimally agree 70% of the way on the things that matter. And yet, he's saying that there's something higher than how we're going to vote on in the November election. See, when you say, here's how you could make your argument greater, that's humility, that's kingdom. You will never hear that in uh, party politics. Never will you hear, you're right and I'm wrong, and here's how you can make your argument better to steal votes from me. Never. But they're not operating under partisan politics. They're operating under the kingdom of God which says God is sovereign over all history, even though we are disagreeing about the future of our nation at this time. That's faith. That's godliness. That is a model of what it looks like to pray lifting holy hands without anger or without 
quarreling. We do that. We pray for kings so that we may have a peaceful society. We experience a peaceful society so that the gospel can go forth to all people because God wants all people to be saved. And we pray without anger or without quarreling and leaving the results to him. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org. 